the great HTC squad. Uh, call it High Road, call it HTC, call it Columbia, whatever the fuck. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 16 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist will only wear club kit when they have to. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the court from the top of the show and let you know who called HTC what? The podcast, it is on iTunes and you can subscribe by going to semiprocycling.com and clicking on the iTunes link in the subscribe part of the menu. Also, if you do like the show, please take some time out to give us a review or hit me up on the comments. It doesn't really matter. So the news for this week, can you guess what I'm going to talk about? Now more than ever, it's not about the bike, it's about the truth. That's right. I can't go past USADA dropping bombs this week. Even after reading a lot of press, I think I've read nearly every single interesting story about it. I've read the entire website and half the affidavits. Even after all of that and reading The Secret Race, it actually affected me a lot different than I expected. I expected, just like during and after reading The Secret Race, that the insights would just add another layer of my love of pro cycling. But what I actually experienced was this total surreal feeling where I felt really disconnected as a fan and a rider to the sport of cycling. It was quite unexpected, but my emotions changed a lot in the first few days after I spent the night going over all the material. As someone that's never been close to the inner circle of pro cycling, I've always thought there's elements to training and racing that are secret and not spoken about. And while this does hold true, it's kind of all this stuff unfolding in front of me. It was built on lies, built on lies, built on lies. And and I'm now at the point where I'm just angry that anyone that benefited from doping knowingly stopped clean riders from fulfilling their potential. So to that end... I missed the sincerity in all the press releases from the Legs 11, the former writers that were named in the documents, which makes me think that the only reason the information came out of their mouths was because the legal ramifications outweighed keeping their mouths shut. So USADA are definitely a pro outfit and they've built a thorough case here. It adds to the decision of each of the writers. It looks like there'll be a larger fallout, especially in Australia. The last couple of days have been some fireworks happening and a lot of discussion Everyone's interested in Oz has been piqued by Matt White and the Four Corners report that was on last night. I've got that actual video on my website that you can check out. If you're not in Oz, it's a rundown of the entire story. It does have some good interviews. There's also extended interviews on the website itself. But if you don't have a proxy server, you can just jump over to my website on this post and check it out. I believe it's worth it. They interviewed people from the lab in France that did the testing, they interviewed Dick Pound, they interviewed Tyler again, they interviewed Betsy Andreu, if that's how you say it. It's really worth a look. And I'm going to give you a listen of one part of a sworn testimony that Lance Armstrong did in his 2005 pre-case that was brought up by the company that was suing him in regards to insurance payout. If you have a doping offense or you test positive, it goes without saying that you're fired from all of your contracts, not just the team, but there's 
numerous contracts that I have that would all go away. Sponsorship agreements, for example. All of them. Uh, um, and the faith of all the cancer survivors around the world. So everything I do off of the bike would go away, too. And don't think for a second. I don't understand that. It's not about money for me. Everything. It's also about the faith that people have put in me over the years. So all of that would be erased. So I don't need it to say in a contract, you're fired if you test positive. That's not as important as losing the support of hundreds of millions of people. Now, the question I keep asking myself is, has cycling lost its innocence over the past year? I don't think it's just me, but are we as fans hardened and a little more jaded, but better off in our understanding of how the ugly side of our sport operates? For me, I say yes. I do believe that not shying away from the truth only leads to further insights and deeper understanding and a clearer view of potential suspect performances. It's also just cause to call out the UCI to take a look at themselves and the pro riders to be forewarned of a greater fallout shall they choose to dope. Now, let's just get to some bike riding. This week, the nuts and bolts, finding cheap momentum to save you energy. Now, I know you don't know what that means because I made up cheap momentum myself. I'll explain it in a moment. But overall, the idea of momentum is pretty fundamental to riding a bike on two wheels. We all know how this works. There's nothing new here. But momentum itself also plays a great part in the subtle art of cycling. So conserving energy is a massive benefit here. And it gives you cheap place gains and you can close gaps with ease. You can see breakaways. You can attack better. I'm talking it up here. It is one of the fundamental lessons that I learned very, very early on in cycling that if you harness momentum correctly, it can serve you well throughout any type of race, any type of riding. But I have to get into the details to explain a little bit more where you can apply it in different situations. So it's more than just riding smoothly because riding smoothly smoothly is something that's done when all other things remain constant. And as we know, the bulk of bike racing is done with nerves, mishaps, attacks, you name it. So having strategies to get some cheap gains that can give you the edge and definitely between winning and losing, especially if it's getting in that brake, getting that wheel, getting ahead of the next person, whatever it is. Now, a few quick examples of this. So I spoke to Dylan Cooper in episode 13 about riding over the top of a hill instead of just riding to the top. That's one small example. And there is the classic Madison Hansling. Even check out in this year's E3 at 37 seconds. I got the video on my site. At 37 seconds, there's a Hansling in the last 5Ks of the E3. It's pretty funny stuff. Hat tip to Jock for pointing it out. But these are classic examples of using momentum. I'm going to go into it a bit further. I'm going to try and expand on it. And I hope that you use this as the guide to using momentum for your advantage. Let's start on momentum in the broadest, absolute broadest sense. And it's got really not much to do with physics because it's about training. Momentum in training is building on consistency. Fitness has momentum. What you're doing today will carry forward to your fitness in the future. And what you've done over the last months or weeks will help you on where you are today. No consistency in your training means at best limited improvement and at worst 
overtraining and loss of fitness. It's a simple but powerful idea that many semi-pros careers are built on. Building momentum through consistent training over many years sounds like cycling training in a nutshell to me. But it's based on the premise that nothing does more to limit or reduce your fitness than missed rides. And the human body thrives on regular patterns of living. So when cycling routinely and uniformly, progressing for weeks, months, years, fitness steadily improves. Now, this is exactly what we want. One of the biggest mistakes a rider can do is neglect moderation when they're connecting it to momentum. So building momentum through moderately increasing training stress rather than having weekly changes in duration and intensity. Outside of simply not riding, the other element to consider is playing catch-up and putting yourself on a massive week to get back on track from little or no training. This is a recipe for disaster because the adaption process the body goes through, it can't move as fast as that. And then from there, it's just a downward spiral and you may survive a couple of these big weeks, but eventually, let me tell you, it's going to rock your body and you're going to break down. Whether it's injury, burnout, illness or overtraining, something is waiting to happen if you're doing these up and down weeks. It's not going to build the fitness like you think it is. It's actually going to turn you around and spit you out. Now, moving on from that, this idea of cheap momentum. How I'm going to define cheap momentum here is momentum that comes at none or very little extra effort to go further and faster than you otherwise would. Cheap momentum is embodied on a pump track. I'm assuming everyone knows what a pump track is. And the lessons that are learnt on a pump track, when they're transferred into uncurated trails, that's when you start to feel the power of this knowledge. So if as the bike bounces down the trail it fills with energy, or there is potential energy within the trail, we can actually use that for rather than it throwing the bike around to actually drive the bike forward. And the simplest form of that is to pump through a small transition. A transition, dip, either up or down, where the bike changes direction from down to along or along to up. And we can work that transition through using our body mass and compressing the bike, feeding energy through the bike and turning it on down force into forward force. Harnessing the energy that you're creating by moving over obstacles or through pedaling is valuable in conserving energy and propelling you forward. So the repetitive motion builds momentum and propels you along. It's basic physics. Momentum such as that from riding a bike provides continuous power if you pedal at a consistent, steady pace. Now, it's when you start changing pedaling speed or pedaling with an inconsistent method, you're going to use more energy. So shifting gears before you need to is one way to avoid breaking the continuous power. Two examples are standing up on a climb and going into a gully or a dip on a mountain bike. Shifting gear prior to standing and dropping into the gully to maintain momentum will make a smoother transition and avoid wasting any energy. On a side note, I've got a sneaky little tactic. If you're stuck behind anyone in single track and there's no place to pass, so you're stuck there and you've got time on your hands, then drink and eat behind them. This is going to serve you well when you want to pass them because most likely you're going to pass them on the part of the course where you would normally want to drink and eat anyway and it's easier to pass on these places. So while they're eating and drinking, it's so much easier for you to move around them on a wide or flat spot. That's just my little tip. Now, Mountain biking uses inconsistent terrain to generate cheap momentum, whereas cheap momentum on the road is fed from the angle of the corner or the steepness of the hill and the actions that the rider takes in relation to other riders. So it's a little bit different to mountain biking. An example of this is in criterium racing. I've got a great clip 
that I found on YouTube, and it's made by a guy called Ashley Powell of catup.com, and i got to say, it's awesome. My heart was thumping through it. I don't know what level the dudes are in this video, but it is just awesome. This is a technical crit course of the view of the writer with Ashley writing in comments of what he's doing when he's making certain moves. This course is totally different to any dedicated tracks that I'm used to. But other than that, the commentating is super sharp and spot on. And especially in the first minute or so, you can see the effect of momentum. But just watch the whole thing. It's a great watch. I watched it right to the end. I was really enjoying it. But you can see throughout the whole video that it really demonstrates cheap momentum in a criterion. You can watch as other riders wash off speed just because the guy in front of them breaks, but Ashley slips straight through them, sometimes even landing at the front of the bunch with pretty much no effort at all. I've pulled these types of things at local crits, and I've got to say it's about 50-50, and it's definitely worth doing most of this stuff when you can. It gets a little dicey at times. I have been yelled at for pulling some of this stuff, but at other times, it definitely means the difference between getting in a winning break or avoiding a crash. These decisive moments of races that make a massive difference and there's no need to fret that you're at the back of the race. If you have these skills and you can easily just move through the pack, it's going to save you a lot of energy. The only time it gets a little dodgy if you're cutting off dudes in the inside of some tight corner. For me, that's pretty much just bad form. So shooting up on the inside and knocking someone off their line, it's just a no-go in my mind. Do what you want. Just make sure you're not underneath me when I turn that corner. Say you arrive at the front after pulling some of the moves that you see in the video, which I have posted on my site. This is the opportunity to attack. So depending on the pace at the time, and probably your race plan as well, and probably your legs, attacking where there is a lull will maintain your momentum against the bunches. So there is no point attacking when the pace is high because the momentum needed to create the same effect won't get you anywhere really. So, so stating this simply, when you're moving from further back in the pack to the front, you should attack to get a jump on your other riders, especially if they're going into turns or starting a hill. Another element to attacking is when you make the decision to attack, just make it count. Even if it's a split second decision, move with intent and purpose and commit to that attack. Looking back at such crucial moments only slows your forward momentum while giving your opponents to catch you off guard. So just put your head down and go for it. If you choose not to attack when you hit the front, you're going to want to move out of the wind. So watch the Criterion video to see where you should move back to. As Ashley puts it, the sweet spot is about 15 or 20 riders behind the front. Once you have a handle on the skills in the vid, don't be afraid to move around a little bit because conserving energy by protecting yourself and not fighting position is going to become easier. And as long as you can make it to the front of the bunch at crucial moments, then any cheap momentum earned is not wasted. In a broader context now, in something more like road racing, a couple of other ways not to lose momentum is being conscious of where you take your food and drink. Because the worst time to come out of an aero position is when you're going your fastest, i.e. downhills. The best time is when you're slowest, but that's usually when you're going hard up a hill. So the optimum is flat terrain. Now, it's not that this always is going to happen and you're not always going to be in a position to eat or drink just on flat terrain. But if you think twice about breaking your air position just for a drink, it may actually serve you well. I'm going to get a bit further into downhills in just a moment, 
But in much the same way that breaking your aero position compromises your momentum, drafting is a classic way to avoid losing momentum and can be used to slingshot past another rider, especially in a sprint or an attack. So the slingshot is to ride up behind another rider with the help from his draft, then using the momentum to sprint past. Another way of calling it is dropping the wheel. While I've been talking about tactics for moving around and off the front of the bunch, these are all based off other riders where skills for keeping momentum on downhills requires intrinsic actions. Downhills are the obvious places for momentum. There is no need to work as hard going downhill as there is uphill. There may be exceptions to this when you are trying to attack on a downhill. It's not that smart. If you've got a gap and you just want to extend it, whatever it may be. But there is a point, I wish I had looked into it, but I do know there is a point when pedaling downhills is just plain inefficient. It's just going to waste energy and it's going to waste power. You might have to find that sweet spot for yourself to see where you actually are making a difference, where you're just draining your energy for absolutely no reason. So without focusing on working hard, I've got a list of ways to maintain momentum on downhills, specifically in braking, cornering, and steering. So if we start with braking, the points are you're going to wash off your speed before the middle of the corner. You're not braking in the middle of the corner when you have less contact patch on the actual road itself. You want to move into the corner, understanding the speed using indicators before you hit the corner of how much braking you need to do before you get it. But you definitely want to wash off all the speed before the middle of the corner. That's going to be the most efficient way to get around it. Now, you can do this by feathering or pulsing the brakes rather than just slamming them on. If you're slamming on brakes, you're definitely slowing down, which at some point you're going to have to speed back up again if it's not a super steep downhill. And that's going to take energy away from you. If you use your body instead in some situations, if you move out of the aero tuck, then that can act as a sail in itself and that can slow you down just enough to get around the corner. Now, while I'm talking about aero tucks, here's mine. Whatever, whatever, whatever about the controversy of them. I'm a big fan of super weird looking ones because they've always worked for me. I've survived so far, touch wood. But here's mine. Take it as advice if you want. Hands together next to the stem on the top of the bars, elbows tucked in as tight as possible and head down low close to the stem, usually a little bit in front of the stem. I don't want to risk having a bump and slamming up into my chin, so I usually get over the front a little bit. Now, if the road conditions allow, I get extra tuck by moving my chest over my hands and my chin right down towards my front wheel. It's pretty controversial and I have had people looking at me funny, but it's only because I've been smashing past them on the downhills. I maintain eye contact with the road ahead, but generally I put my head down as far as I can go and then I'm looking up as much as possible. My knees are always tucked in and generally touching each other if I'm not pedaling. And I have my ass between the tip of the saddle and a standing position depending on where I'm moving my body forward. In traffic, cars, other riders around you descending in a bunch. I'll be on the drops. I'm trying to maintain essentially the same position, but I will probably be back a little further, but I'll still have my elbows and knees tucked in. And the entire time I'll be relaxed and absorbing shocks so that nothing throws me or bucks me off the bike. I'm interested to hear how other people ride. If you could send photos of how you do it, There are some gnarly dudes in the peloton. There are some gnarly dudes you see out on the road when they're smashing down there. I'm 
so fascinated by some of these aero moves. I don't know whether there's any testing that's been done on it. I'd be interested to find out what has been done and which is the most efficient way to do it. For me, this feels like when I'm getting over the front, I'm putting my weight forward. You know, I'm not a heavy guy. And so getting that weight forward just seems to build my momentum and I get faster and faster. Now, cornering. At speed, essentially, you're not steering the bike. You're just leaning the bike. And the faster you go, the less input that you need to do that. Now, there is a common theory that you should lean the bike, not your body. My take is that it's going to vary when you do these things, and they're both necessary. In wet conditions, I lean my body more than my bike. Now, I do this because I want the contact patch of my tire to be at the maximum amount of rubber available. So if you ever see MotoGP guys riding, you'll essentially see that their body is over and their bike is more upright, especially in the wet, when instead of moving on, say, I don't know what it, exactly what it is, but say you're moving on 5 to 10 millimeters of tread, if you're pushing the, the bike more upright when you're hitting that corner and your body's leaning over, it may allow 15 to 20. So that could potentially be a 50 to 100%, talking out my ass here, but a 50 to 100% gain in traction. So this is why I think in wet conditions and sometimes when it's slippery out, not on the road, also on the mountain bike as well, that getting the maximum tire tread is the first thing in my mind when I'm hitting a certain corner. Now, I can contrast this to something, say, like a dry crit on a closed course where it's smooth, clean, it's predictable, you've done the corner a hundred times already, there's less danger, there's no things are going to pop out in front of you. A course like this means I can afford, I feel like, and I do it, I feel like I can afford more time leaning over. That's when I put my bike down just as much as my body. So I'm committing, I'm fully committing into a corner in that, in that instance. So the final thing for downhills is cornering. And whenever you're going down a hill, you're wanting to look as far ahead as possible. And you're looking where you want to go. Even on blind corners, you're looking where you want to go and as far as possible. It's quite nerve-wracking to do this at first. And if you're doing it at speed, it feels unnatural. But trust me, over time, once you build this skill up and you're comfortable with doing it, you'll realize that wherever you're looking, the bike is following. So if you start looking off the side of the road, that's when you start getting into danger. I've done this where I've been pelting down the side of a mountain. I've looked over the side and I've kind of had to take stock because I didn't realize I was going so fast and maybe I got a bit freaked out for a moment. But as soon as that happened, my bike started just veering towards the side of the road. It's, it was only when I pulled my eyes back onto the road, I focused on where I wanted to go, I ballsed up and I was able to make it down the hill without crashing. So this skill in itself, it's one that will take time and it's one that is better done at speed so that you can feel the effects because essentially you don't know what's going to happen when you are going around blind corners. Covering your brakes in blind corners and unstable surfaces by placing your hands over the levers themselves but not actually pulling them. Definitely be times when you may need to pull on the brakes in emergency situations but pulling them anytime before that is just going to slow you down and stop your momentum. So by just simply putting your fingers out and over the levers this is going to reduce your reaction time if there are any emergencies and hopefully you don't squeeze it if you just get a little spooked because that's just going to slow you down even more. 
Now, that is basically my rundown on momentum. So not only does it relate to other riders and moving around other riders and in a pack, but it also relates to using forward propulsion based on the idea of a pump track where your body is generating the energy to propel the bike forward without even pedaling. Also, going down hills, attacking, using any tactics like that, it's going to give you a certain edge when it comes to conserving energy I hope you got something from that. I'm going to keep adding to the episode page. I'm going to try and break down each element of any type of race so that there's an overview and you can know where you can get little gains here and there and you can conserve energy. And hopefully one day you will remember one part of this podcast and it's going to mean the difference between winning and losing. Okay, so let's get to the tech, hacks and products section. If you've been in the game a while then you're going to know these beauties. If not, here it is. It's the best tire levers known to man. And what am I talking about? Michelin tire levers, the yellow ones. You can't mess with these puppies. I guarantee that they're unbreakable. Well, I can't guarantee that. I just know I've had mine for 15 years plus, and they're still kicking. They are in perfect, perfect condition. They're a little dirty, but that just adds charm to them. They don't have sharp edges, so you can use them when you're putting a tire on, even though that's not super pro, but we're semi-pro here after all, so bam. Let's get to the quote from the top of the show. It was one of our favorites, the Sherwinator, a.k.a. Sherwin the Vermin, a.k.a. Paul Sherwin, being a little lax in the commentary box. Don't you just love it? And that's it. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 